Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So this morning, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to be reading, actually. But in fact, we'll be in Mark chapter 11, 12, and 13. So it's super helpful if you have your Bible opened there, because we're not going to read all of it. Uh, This past Thursday night, a bunch of you got an email from me, or purporting to be from me, uh, suggesting that if uh, you were to reply discreetly, please, that uh, I would like to talk with you about something. And for those of you who fell for it, you replied to the email, and then you'll know the email that came back in response to that was uh, me saying that I wanted to help some cancer patients, and if you would just give me a $2,000 gift Amex gift card, uh, that then I would promise to pay you back, and thank you very much for helping me to help cancer victims, right? And um, now, obviously, it's a scam, and anybody who knows me, you know, well, yeah, I got a big heart, but I don't have a big wallet like that, right? So, clearly, but you know, the cool thing that I, I guess the strangely cool thing about it that I was encouraged by was that, I mean, so first of all, it was a pain in the neck, because I spent two hours on Thursday night texting and calling a bunch of you, because you were calling and texting concerned, which you're not a pain. I'm just saying the whole thing, you know, was a pain, right? (laughs) Two hours, I could have been doing something else, but I'm spending responding to all these things. But but the cool thing was that, that, like, many of you said, yeah, I knew it couldn't be you. It didn't sound like you. (laughs) And you know what? And I think that's neat, to be known right, to be known in a way that you know you read the email and you're like, okay, there's not enough hillbilly in there to be Doug. I know, I know, that's not, that's not Doug writing that email, right? And you knew that. And that's really the purpose, you know, of the gospel of Mark. Like Mark wrote this whole gospel because he wants us to know the real Jesus so that he, so that when you come across the fake Jesus, you, he doesn't pass the sniff test. And you just know automatically, no, that's, that's not the right one. And that's the whole purpose for Mark, because he doesn't want us to get sucked into the scam. There's a lot of squirrely ideas out there about Jesus. You know, if you hear some people talk, Jesus hates gays and he's a bigot. You hear other people talk, and Jesus is just this big mush bucket. He loves everybody. He hugs sheep and kids and stuff like that. And he's kind of like Santa Claus, but with sandals and a robe, and right? I mean... You hear that, and then, you know, the Jesus nowadays that's real popular is the social justice Jesus. He's real well-known. He's out there just fighting injustice and righting all the wrongs of society, right? The truth is you can literally drive yourself crazy if you try to get your clues about Jesus from culture or from the church. Jesus even warned us about this. Like, this is actually found in our text today, Mark chapter 13. If you look at Mark chapter 13, 21 through 23, Jesus warned his disciples. He says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. 
for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. See, Jesus is warning us that there are frauds and you need to know him so that you can pick them apart. So you say, well, how can I protect myself from getting duped? There's only one way, and there are no shortcuts. You need to get into the Word of God. There's simply no substitute for it. In fact, I would say this. If you're not in the Word of God, hear me, then most of what you believe about God is wrong. This is divine revelation. Like he has, it, this is what we call special, re- God has revealed himself to us in these pages. Yes, you can learn about God from creation. You know, you look at all these made and you can s- learn many things about God from what he's made. But this, my friend, is special revelation. He's spoken to us. It's his word. So if I don't know if, if, if I'm not in the word of God, then it's safe to say that most of what I know about God or believe about God is probably wrong. We've learned from Mark that even in Jesus' day, people had different opinions about Jesus. I mean, you had some people that called him the devil. You had other people that thought he was crazy. Most people just followed Jesus around for the miracles, the free food, the cool show. And then there were a few. There were just a very small group of people who actually wanted Jesus. And they didn't want anything else. They just wanted Jesus. And this has all come to a head in the last couple of weeks as both David and Audrey have taught us, which thank you, both of you. You did an awesome job. I'm grateful for your gifts. But, but two weeks ago, David brought us to the pinnacle in, in the summit of Mark's gospel in chapter 8, verse 29, where Peter, under divine revelation, announces Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the one that we have always been longing for and waiting for. That's like the pinnacle of the book. And you would think in that moment that Jesus would be like, it's about time, you guys. Finally, how many miracles do I have to do? No, but that's not at all. Instead, what Jesus does is he warns them not to tell anybody. Isn't that funny? Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anybody after Peter finally figured it out? It's like, this is the secret. Tell people. The reason is this, because Jesus knows that there's a lot of janky ideas about him, and he wants the ability to define who he is. He's not going to let you define him. He's not going to let me define him. He's not going to let culture define him. He doesn't care about popular opinion. That's not his thing. He's not doing polls to figure out the best way to present himself. Jesus is like, I am going to define who I am. And so as Audrey taught us last week, what does Jesus do? Three different times, not once, three times, Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again. And they still didn't comprehend it, did they? Peter had the nerve to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine the gall? Uh, Peter rebuking the second person of the Trinity for telling who he is and what he's come to do. 
And yet he did. Why are we so stubborn in our refusal to accept Jesus for who he is? Have you thought about that? Why is it that we keep insisting on defining Jesus in our own terms? Perhaps it's because that makes it more comfortable for us. We don't really want the scary Jesus who commands demons and death, storms and sicknesses. Like, we want the safe Jesus. We want the sheep-hugging, you know, kind of Jesus. We want the Ricky Bobby version of Jesus. You ever see the movie Talladega Nights? The Ricky Bobby version of Jesus, where he's just the sweet little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus in the manger. That's the Jesus you see that I can control. And that's the Jesus I want. Well, newsflash, Jesus refuses to be tamed by you. But if you will bow to him, huh, he'll turn your life upside down, and you'll never be happier about it. You know, Jesus is the only one I know who can ruin all my little plans and at the end leave me so glad that he did. Has that not been your experience at times? Like, man, he screwed up everything I was going to do, but I'm glad for it. So as Jesus continues to reveal himself, we come into Mark chapter 11, 12, and 13, these three chapters, and we find Jesus changing our view of what it means to win, what it means to succeed what it means to triumph. So I've called this uh, message Jesus the triumphant, but it's kind of like triumphant almost tongue-in-cheek because it's not triumphant in the way that we think or we would define triumph, but neither is it triumph anything like what, it's not like the public school version of triumph either where, you know, everybody gets a prize and everybody's a winner. Like it's not that kind of triumph either. So I want to ask you, are you ready to have your definition of what it means to succeed change? And are you ready to have your definition of what, it, of what it means to actually follow Christ change? Because it's about to get turned upside down. So the first thing we need to do as we come into Mark chapter 11, 12, and 13 is I just want you to notice something, okay? Notice that this section of Mark, it begins and it ends with the arrival of Jesus, You see that as Mark chapter 11 opens, we come into what we call the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. We celebrate it on Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on the donkey and the crowds sing his praises. But then if you go over to chapter 13, you notice that the whole chapter, Jesus is talking about the end of time. And then it actually ends, chapter 13, ends with Jesus saying that, you know, nobody knows the time or the day when the Son of Man's going to return. And so, so if, it's kind of cool how this section begins and it ends with the arrival of Jesus, and then you come to the bottom of chapter 13, and what's your Bible say? What's the last word of, your ch- of chapter 13 in the Bible? Watch! It's a one-word command. Jesus says, watch! Because between this coming and that coming, there are a, there's a lot of trouble. And if you think about it, is this not where we're living? We are in between the two comings, aren't we? Jesus has already entered Jerusalem. That happened 2,000 years ago. And we're waiting for the second coming. So Mark 11, 12, and 13 is really a picture of your life and mine. And, And what we discover is that as we await the coming of Christ, as we await that, as we live between these two arrivals, there are these two primary forces that are working against us that are literally fighting us every step of the way. You have religion 
and culture. Now, we would expect culture to fight against us. Like, I don't expect the world to stand up and cheer that I have decided to follow Jesus. Do you? I don't expect the world to say, oh, that's so great for you that you want to follow Jesus. I'm glad you love Jesus. Like, I don't expect that from the world, but I am surprised by it from the church. And yet, if you look at it honestly, who were Jesus's greatest critics? Religious people. The religious leaders, people. See, so we find that really, that it's hard, it can catch us off guard. That religion would actually be working against my walk with Jesus. And it is. In fact, I would say that the, that the more mature you become in your, in your relationship with Jesus, the less religious you are. That all of us begin religious, and then we lose religion as we grow in intimacy with Jesus. And that some of the most religious people on the planet actually never go to church. Religion is not about going to church. It really isn't. Religion is, is more of a mindset. It's, it's, it's me working my way to God. See? And, and religious people are, will be the greatest resistance to your intimacy with Christ, the greatest danger to your soul. Let's, let's get into it. Let's just look at this. We'll walk through Mark 11, 12, and 13. So Mark 11 opens up, and what we're going to do is this. We're not going to read it all. I'm going to walk through it, but then we're going to stop and read the flashpoint of this whole section because it's just so beautiful and we can't miss it. So I'm going to fly through a little bit and then stop, okay? So you notice right away, chapter 11 opens up with the triumphal entry. Jesus walks into Jerusalem, he marches in, and you would think that this is the greatest day of Jesus' life because finally the crowds understand it. They're finally celebrating him. You're the king. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of God, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you think this is awesome, except there are many things off about this scene. And the biggest thing that's off about this scene is the donkey. Notice that verse 4 says they found the cult of a donkey, a baby donkey. It's about the size of a large dog. And so to Jesus ride that, that'd be like an awkward ride. Wouldn't it? It's, it's more like, it's probably more like he straddled it. And, 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 then, and then the people are laying their old coats down, and he's, and he's, you know, kind of awkwardly trying to ride this thing through the streets. And you see, if Jesus was an earthly king coming into town, he'd ride a white stallion, decked out in gold and red and purple cloth. And I mean, he would be majestic and larger than life, and he would command the presence and own the street, right, if this is the earthly king. And so right away you get this picture, you're the king, but you're a whole different kind of king. Interesting. And then verse 11 tells us, chapter 12, I mean, chapter 11, verse 11, verse 11 tells us that Jesus enters in, he goes into the temple, he scans things, but it's kind of late in the day, so he goes back to Bethany and spends the night with some friends, day one. And then the very next morning, we come into this next part of chapter 11, and this is what we've come to learn is a Markin sandwich. Bible scholars call it a Markin sandwich, where Mark takes two stories, smashes them together to make one story. So he tells a story of this fig tree, Jesus clearing the temple, 
And then he comes back to the fig tree again. You see that in chapter 11? And, and he does that because it's, telling, it's making a very strong point. So he starts off, Jesus starts off, he's hungry. There's a fig tree, no figs on it. Jesus curses the fig tree. You say, well, man, that's really mean. Except, hang on, let's finish the story and you'll discover why Jesus does this to the fig tree. Then Jesus comes into the temple and he discovers this place that's supposed to be a place where people meet God. Is that not what the purpose of a temple is? It's supposed to be a place where people worship God. And we're, we're, we're sinners and, you know, scallywags and purple, you know, dirt bags. We can all come, all of us, with all of our stuff and come in and meet with the God of the universe, right? And yet, instead, they had turned the temple into a, a Walmart, a place of commerce. They're arguing, they're, they're cheating each other and trying to get the best deal. And, and Jesus cleanses the temple. He wipes it clean. He kicks them all out, throws over the tables, you say, well, boy, how do the religious leaders feel about that? I bet they must have just loved it. Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you finally brought us to, back to our, where we're supposed to be. You know, Jesus cleanses it, and he says, I'm going to declare to you today that this place is not a place of commerce. This is a house of prayer for all nations. It's the place where anybody can come and bring their need to God and meet God. How do the religious leaders feel about that? Well, verse 18 says that they tried to kill Jesus. You know, you don't, you don't challenge religion without getting into trouble. You just don't. Isn't it interesting that the very thing meant to bring us closer to God actually keeps us from him? Isn't that something? Do you know that religion is probably the biggest reason why you struggle to pray and read your Bible? It's the truth. Religion has stripped the joy out of it. It turned it from something that's intimate, something sweet, precious. Turn it into just something you got to do. Check off the box, get it done. See, it's interesting, isn't it? That the closer you walk with Jesus, the less religious you become. So Jesus strips this place of religion, and he says, let's just simplify it. This is a house of prayer. That's what this is. Let's just cut all the, cut through all the red tape. Let's cut it. Forget all the program. It's, this is a house of prayer. This is where people meet God. And they hate him for it. So Jesus leaves the temple and, you know, he moves on. And then he comes into the disciples notice that the fig tree is now withered. Remember, Jesus had to curse the fig tree, goes into the temple. They come out of the temple. The fig tree is withered. And disciples marvel at that. And then Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty three, 23, he says, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now, the key word in this verse, the key word in this verse is this. You see the word this, this mountain? He's not saying if you have faith, you can cast any old mountain, tell any old mountain to jump in a lake. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's referring specifically to this mountain, which is the temple. You see, the temple in Jerusalem sat on a hill. It was at a high point in the city of Jerusalem, and they actually called it the Temple Mount. Okay, the Temple Mountain. So when Jesus is saying, you can say to this mountain, 
go into the sea, and it'll be done. What Jesus is saying, it requires faith for you to rebuke religion from your life. If you have the faith to rebuke religion in your life, to leave that, to leave that old way of thinking behind, if you have the faith to do that, he says it'll happen, and you can come into intimacy. You can actually come into relationship with me. See, that's what he's saying. Now anybody can come and meet God. Well, you say, well, what's up with the withered fig tree? Then why does Jesus make the fig tree wither? Because it's a picture. It's a picture. Remember, it had no fruit on it? So, it's, so the fig tree is just like religion, isn't it? It's pretty, but fruitless. Looks nice, but it's not doing you any good. See, can I ask you this question? Like, what lasting good has religion ever done in your life? Just think through it. What lasting good has religion served you? I mean, maybe it made you prettier. Maybe it made you a nice person, right? But again, I'm asking, like, what lasting good has it made in your life? Naturally, the religious leaders don't like this. We've already noticed that they didn't like it when he cleaned the temple, and they wanted to kill him, but they can't figure out how to get this done. They want to kill Jesus. How do we do this? And so they come at Jesus hard with attack after attack after attack. In Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33, the next section, they flat out ask Jesus, who gives you the right to do what you're doing? Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Which Jesus does not answer. I love that. He just kind of ignores the question, and then he goes on into chapter 12 with a parable. Let me tell you boys a story, and he tells him this story about a parable, uh, tells him the story about a vineyard, and he says, now here's this, a man has a vineyard, and he plants the vineyard, and then he hires these stewards to take care of the vineyard. Now you need to understand something that that's very significant to these Jewish minds, because all throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's vineyard. And so in this story, the owner of the vineyard is God, and the vineyard is Israel. And the stewards charged with taking care of the vineyard are these religious leaders. And Jesus says, you know, the, you know they're supposed, you're supposed to take care of this vineyard, and over time, the owner sent messenger after messenger to uh, check on the vineyard, a.k.a. the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, sent to, sent to call Israel back to the heart of God. You know, call them into repentance. And how do they respond? Well, some of them they killed. Many of them they rejected, rebuked, sent away, mistreated. And then Jesus in the story says, so finally the owner of the vineyard decided, you know, why don't I send my one and only son? They'll respect my son. And so he sends the son. And what do the vineyard stewards do? They kill the son. And then we come to the, we come into chapter, we come into verse, um, we come into verse 12, chapter 12. It says, then the chief priest, the teachers of the law, the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So Jesus, they challenged Jesus' authority. Who gives you the right to do what you're doing? And Jesus tells them a little story that basically exposes them for the frauds that they are and basically predicts what they're about to do. Remember, so I guess you could say, Audrey, this is the fourth time now 
that Jesus predicts that he's going to die at the hands of these religious leaders. In kind of a more sly way, but nonetheless, right? They don't honor him. Well, if I can't get Jesus arrested, if I can't kill him, then they start trying some other tactics. How do we get Jesus? Let's try to trip him up. Let's try to get Jesus to say something stupid that'll get him in trouble. Maybe that'll work, okay? And so this is what we come to next. The first section in chapter 12, taxes. That's a great one. Nobody likes taxes. If Jesus answers this question the wrong way, yes. If he answers, if he answers it against taxes, well, then Rome's going to come after him because Rome wants you to pay your taxes. And if he answers it pro-taxes, well, then the people are going to turn against Jesus because nobody likes paying taxes. So let's ask him a question about taxes. And then Jesus has this brilliant answer, doesn't he? Uh, show me a coin. And whose inscription's on that coin? Caesar. Great. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give God what belongs to God. And I want you to see this little, if you got your Bible open, I want you to see, uh, you might want to write this down. In verse, um, in verse uh, 17, the seal verse 17, they were amazed at him. You see that? That word amazed is cool because in the Greek that Mark's originally written, it literally means jaw-dropping. So not in the sense, like, not in the metaphorical sense, like we say, oh, that was jaw-dropping, meaning it was amazing, but nobody literally dropped their jaws. Like Mark is saying, no, they literally dropped their jaws. They were like, man, we can't get this guy on nothing. Well, yeah, you think about it, it's kind of an unfair fight. He is God, isn't he? Right? Isn't it interesting that these guys are trying to trap God? And God's like, yeah, right. It's like child's play for him. It doesn't even, doesn't even phase him, right? Undeterred a little while later, well, if we can't get him to uh, say something that Rome's going to kill him for, and if we can't get him to say something that people aren't going to like, maybe we can get him to say something that God won't like. And this is the next attack. As Mark 12 continues, some Sadducees come to him with a question about marriage at the resurrection. And, and uh, they set this up. <clears throat> because, you see, God had actually designed this. This is actually God's plan in marriage. In the Old Testament, God had inspired Moses to direct this, to do this thing called the kinsman redeemer. It was a law in Israelite law, and it was designed to protect women, and it was designed to, to, to preserve family land in a family, because, you know, the farm was very important. And the way that it worked was this, is if a man is married to a woman, and he dies and they have no children, then the law was set up that his closest brother, closest male relative, would marry his widow and marry her in order that she would have children in the dead man's name so that then the property would stay in the family and so that she as a widow would be provided for and cared for for the rest of her life. So in, in the heart of it was really good. It was a, a way, it was designed to you know, take care of the widow and to provide. So these Sadducees use this to try to trap Jesus. Hey, so, what, so let's say this woman, she gets married and then her husband dies and well then she ends up marrying all seven of the brothers and uh, well now then they all die and, and then she ends up in heaven. Now whose wife is she? And, and Jesus, you know, they think, well, that's pretty clever. We can get Jesus to maybe say that's a dumb rule or something like that that would go against Mosaic law. 
Jesus just says, you know, you guys don't understand. You guys don't get this. And marriage is a thing about earth. It's, you know, it's, it's only necessary for this life. But in heaven, it's actually not really needed there. All right? They can't get that to work. So let's ask them a question about the Ten Commandments. That's the third. That's the next one, the greatest commandment. A man comes to Jesus and asks him questions on the Ten Commandments. And this one almost catches me as demeaning. I mean, if you think about it, you're asking Jesus about the Ten Commandments. You know what I mean? Like, every good Jew would be able to know the Ten Commandments inside and out, like any good Jew. And this is Jesus. Asking him about the Ten Commandments, that's like asking Martha Stewart if brownies have chocolate. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, of course they do. It's almost, it's almost demeaning to him. But I love the humility of Jesus. And I love the fact that Jesus deals differently with this attack than he does the other ones. He deals differently with this man. He engages him in conversation. He actually talks to him. And, th and then at the end of the conversation, Jesus tells the guy, he actually compliments him. He goes, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're pretty close, pal. It's interesting that Jesus would handle it differently. And I think what, it's, what it actually does is it elevates the Ten Commandments. You know, if it's a question about marriage, if it's a question about taxes, all right, Jesus can skirt that issue, no problem. But this is the Ten Commandments. These actually come from the very heart of God. They do, don't they? And, and, they're, and so Jesus elevates them. He's like, you're going to ask me a question about the Ten Commandments? Let's stop and talk about that. And, and he ends up complimenting the man, and he walks away, I don't know, a friend? We're not sure how, that, how it totally ended up, but conflict um, was avoided, right? And then it comes time for Jesus to start asking some questions. Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37, Jesus starts to turn the tables, and he says, I want to quote, he quotes from Psalms 110. Psalms 110 was a well-known psalm to these Jewish people, and they believed that it had messianic implications. And it's a psalm about King David and King David and his son. And you see, there was a long-standing belief that the Messiah would actually come from the line of David, and they never really thought of the Messiah as being God in the flesh. That was never really part of the Jewish understanding. They didn't think about God coming to earth in the flesh. They thought about a descendant of David. And so Jesus takes Psalms 110, and he kind of flips it. And he says, so if, if the Messiah is just the descendant of David, then how is it that David calls the Messiah Lord? And again, the crowd is sitting there listening like, that's a good point, Jesus. And they're thinking. You can see that. You see verse 37, the large crowd listened to him with delight. And then Jesus keeps on teaching. Here's where we want to read. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And then for a show, make lengthy prayers. He says, these men will be punished most severely. Now Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put 
And he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Do you, do you see this? You see what's happening here? Jesus is taking attack after attack after attack. This, this religious system is abusive to the point where literally it's, they're stealing widows' houses. I mean, you want to talk about how low that is. Wouldn't you, Matt, you would agree? That's the lowest of low. Stealing widows' houses from them. And they're keeping people from God. This whole system, they're turning the temple into a Walmart. It's just an absolute mess, isn't it? And they're coming after Jesus, coming after him day after day after day to try to trap him. And then Jesus flips it around and he gives a warning. He says, you got to watch out for those guys because those guys don't mean you any good. And then in the middle of all of this, there's this widow who you might wonder if her own house had not been taken by one of the Pharisees or Sadducees. It's interesting that it's put side by side, isn't it? That we're, Jesus warns them about taking widows' houses, and then, well, what do you know? Here's a widow. I wonder if her own house hadn't been stolen by these religious leaders. And yet, she takes her last two copper coins, and she gives everything she has in worship to God. And you see how this grabs Jesus' heart? So much so that I love verse 43. I picture it. I picture the disciples. They're not exactly with Jesus in this moment, and he's watching it. But Jesus calls them over. Hey, boys, come, come, you got to see this. Guys, Matthew, Peter, John, James, come on over here. You, do you see her? Look at her. And the guys are no doubt like you and me. Well, yeah. Jesus goes, no, no, no. Do you see? She's giving her last two copper coins. Everything she has to live on, she's giving everything she has to God in worship. Do the disciples get it? Well, no. Look at the very next verse, chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus is leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. You ever notice that we, like, we are just caught up with the wrong things, aren't we? We are impressed by the size of buildings, the size of budgets, the size of offerings, the size of crowds. We are just impressed by all of that stuff. It catches our eyes. What catches the heart of Jesus? This little widow with her two little copper coins that nobody else notices. Jesus sees it. This widow stands out in contrast to all of the conflict and all the questioning and all the corruption of this religious system that has kept people far from God and that's shoving Jesus to the margins. This little lady, I, I, little, I probably shouldn't say little, this widow, she becomes, 
She becomes the hero of this whole text, doesn't she? She becomes the ultimate example of what we're supposed to be. In, in one way, she's a picture of Jesus, who would give his all for us. But in another way, she's a picture of us, who in, in trials, in tribulations, despite all the odds, I'm faithful. I'm faithful. I just... I keep plowing through. I keep my eyes on Jesus, despite all the odds against me. See? She's like this little flower in the woods, isn't she? I mean, you think about it. She's surrounded by all this debris and danger, and then she blooms anyway. And she's made all the more beautiful in the middle of all of this bad. Do you see her? Do you see her? I hope you do. Chapter 11 opens with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And then chapter 13 ends with his second coming at the end of the ages. And in between, there's all this conflict. There's this tribulation. And there are these threats to your relationship with God, whether they're coming from the world, but probably mostly coming from religious people, coming from even church people. There are threats to your soul, right? We've got haters, and we've got arguments, and we've got people setting traps, and we have religious leaders who steal widows' houses. And in the middle of it all, there's this one faithful woman who gives everything she has. Her story, see, her story is meant to be our story. Her story is meant to be our story. Are you faithful in the midst of trial? A couple of things we can grab out of this, okay? Just to wrap this up. First of all, God sees things differently than we do. That's pretty obvious. Everybody else sees the fat checks, and God sees the two copper coins because he sees the heart behind those coins, see? But see, religion is impressed by the size of buildings and budgets and numbers and so forth and our arguments and our doctrines and this and that and the other thing. That's religion. Religion, if you think about it, is nothing more than one virtue signal after another. You know, look at my yard sign. Look at what I posted. Do you see how holy I am? Aren't I a good person? Look at what a good person I am. See? That's religion. Religion's all about how I look. But an intimate relationship, man, that's about, that's about the heart. And God's looking at that heart. He's looking, is it obedient? Is it, is it humble? Is it faithful? Like, that's what God's looking for. Isn't it interesting that this woman's offering is completely unnoticeable by anybody else, overshadowed by all the fat checks, but Jesus notices it? And I, I encourage you with that. You know, maybe you feel like you're that. Maybe you feel like you're the widow. Like, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer here. I got nothing of value to bring to this table. And God says, give me what you've got. It's beautiful to me. He loves what you've got, right? It honors him. And, and this, is a, this is what relationship is, right? Religion allows you, you see, religion allows you, religion allows you to hold back a part of yourself. As long as you check off the right boxes and you do the right things, well, then you're okay. But religion still allows you to have a whole lot of space over here for you. You see that? But intimate relationship doesn't. Intimate relationship requires everything. Jesus make, takes the first step, 
He says, I've given all I have to you because I love you. And now he asks you to do the same in return. Give all you have to him that the two of you might walk together in intimate relationship. This is what he's calling us to. Not to the other. And the second point we can make out of this is too, we need to change our definition of success. It changes how we define triumphant. It, we often think of triumphing as I've overcome trouble. I'm the winner. I come out on top. That's triumph. But Jesus was surrounded by trouble. And yet he was triumphant, wasn't he? This woman, she's a, she's a victim of the trouble. Wouldn't you say, is it safe to say if there was ever a victim? She's probably victimized by this religious system. She's a victim of the trouble, and yet faithful. She's triumphant. I think that we can change our definition of triumph. Do you know what's truly triumphant? What's truly triumphant is giving everything you have when there are a million reasons to hold back and be selfish. That's triumphant. Like, there's a million reasons not to give it, but you give it anyway. There's a million reasons for you to compromise and go with the flow in the world because you don't want to cause trouble, keep your you know, nose, keep your head down so you don't get chopped off. Like, there's a million reasons to, to just blend in, aren't there? And triumphant says, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give everything I have to Jesus anyway. Even though I don't see very many other people doing it, I'm going to do it because he's worth it, because he's captured my heart. Like this widow, he's taken my heart. I love him. I give him everything I have. I, don't, I, I, I might not see other people doing it, but that doesn't matter because my eyes are only on him. And so he has everything I have. I give it to him. See? What, let's be clear, what, what distinguishes a true follower of Jesus from someone who's just being religious? A true follower of Jesus gives their all. Like this widow, she's the example of what it is to truly follow Christ. She's the example. She's, she's fully aware of all the trouble, and yet instead of stumbling over the trouble, she's faithful in spite of it. Amazing, isn't she? And then Jesus tells us to watch. We said that earlier. The last word of chapter 13 is this command to watch. In essence, what Jesus is telling us to do, he's challenging us to learn to look through trouble and not at trouble. If I look at trouble, I will be discouraged, and so will you. If I look around me at all of the trouble, and would you agree that there's a lot of trouble to look at? Like, there's a lot of trouble. If I look at all of the trouble, I will be discouraged. And, I, and I'll, be, I'll be tempted to just pull back. I mean, why should I bother to stick my neck out if nobody else is sticking their neck out? Amen? Isn't that how we think? Like, why, why, am I, why do I feel like I'm sometimes the only one trying hard here? Have you ever had that sense? Sometimes, right? Because I'm looking at the trouble and I get discouraged by it. And Jesus says, don't do that. Look through it. Look through the trouble. See him on the other side, arms open wide, receiving you, right? Look through the trouble. My eyes are on him. I give him everything I have. The trouble is going to be what it is. 
you know what? Clearly, we've always had trouble. That This was 2,000 years ago. Amen? I, I don't know that there's ever been a generation that didn't have trouble. And so, so we're, no, we're not any special. Don't, don't, don't fall into that trap. Somehow thinking like, oh, like this is the worst it's ever been. It's always been bad. Do you see how that's a trap from the enemy? Getting you to watch the news every day, feeling like, wow, man, this whole world's going to hell in a handbasket, gets worse and worse and worse every single day. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And it's discouraging, isn't it? Which keeps you from giving everything you have. Just look through it. See yourself as this little widow. I shouldn't use the word little, I'm sorry. See yourself as this widow. Say, okay, Jesus, I'm giving you all I got. I'm going to go for you, Jesus. I'm going to go for you. Amen? Amen. Okay. I think that's the worst. I think that's the word for us this morning. That's the word for us. Be encouraged. We're between these two comings. But Jesus calls you and me to the life of this widow right here to give everything we have despite the trouble around us. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.